before uh, we get into our text this morning, I think it is helpful for us to be able to see uh, the total message that's being presented in this uh, chapter. So I want to give you a big picture overview of the chapter before we start to dissect it section by section. I think Philippians chapter 3, and yes, you'll notice uh, I'm, I'm on the verge of losing my voice. Um, that's been happening for the past couple of days. My prayer this morning was, God, just let it hang out a little bit longer so that I can get through these services today. Uh, for a guy that's been used to preaching two or three times on a Sunday morning, me personally, man, I'm glad that we're back to two services because I love to be able just to share. And, and I'm excited about what's happened today, and I'm excited about the direction that we're going. And so I pray that my voice will hold out just long enough uh, to get us through this message, and then it can go away. Just as long as it comes back for next Sunday, I'll be pleased. But I think as we look at chapter 3, chapter 3 can really be broken down into three major sections. In verses 1 through 11, Paul is going to be talking about his past. And when he talks about his past, he takes on the language of an accountant. And the main thought is that, uh, with the language of an accountant, his main thought is that he, he counts new values. Then we get to verses 12 through 16, Paul's going to be talking about his present life. When he's talking about his present life, he takes on the language of an athlete. And with the language of an athlete, his main thought is how he presses on with new vigor. Then we get to verse number 17, from 17 through 21, Paul talks about his future. And in talking about the future, he takes on language as an alien or a stranger and the main thought there is how he looks for new vision. So Paul talks about his past, his present, and his future with the language of an auditor, an accountant, an athlete, or an alien so that he can count new values, so he can press on with new vigor, so he can look with new vision. Now what we've already discovered through our study through this book, in chapter 1, we know that the secret to joy in spite of our circumstances, is in the development of of the single mind. That single mind devotion says that no matter what it is that you face, no matter what it is that you're going through, you're going to seek to glorify God and to share the gospel. Now in chapter 2, we've already learned that the secret to joy, in spite of other people, is in having a submissive mind. The way we develop a submissive mind is that we work it out, We work out our salvation that God works in us. So we work it out and then we knock it off. What do we knock off? We knock off the arguing, the complaining, the griping, and the grumblings. So we work it out, we knock it off so that we can shine. We can shine as a light in this dark and desperate world in which we live in. Now, if we fail to develop the single-mindedness of chapter 1 or the submissive-mindedness of chapter 2, then circumstances or people will have a tendency to rob us of our joy. But here's the thing. Circumstances and people aren't the only threat to our joy. Things can be a threat to joy. And the things are the thief that Paul deals with in chapter 3. So the overall theme for chapter 3, or the secret that we find, is that the secret to joy in spite of things, is in the development of the spiritual mind. 
it's easy, if we're not careful, it's extremely easy for us to get wrapped up in things. Not just the tangible things that we can see, but sometimes even the intangible things, such as fame or, or, reputi- or, or reputation. Now, look what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism uh, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See, in Paul's case, the things that he was living for before he came to know Christ in a personal way have a tendency, if we're not careful, to look at those things and say, hey, those are somewhat commendable. He's doing a good job. I mean, Paul was focused on, on spiritual achievements. He was focused on living a righteous life. He was focused on being obedient to the law. He was focused on de- defending the religion of his fathers. But none of those things satisfied him, or, or, or more importantly, none of those things gave him acceptance before holy and righteous God. Like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble. He just lacked the righteousness to get him into heaven. And so Paul's going to explain in, in our text today and in the weeks to follow that there's ultimately two types of righteousness. There is a work-based righteousness that is ultimately empty and falls short of the mark of God. Or there's faith-based righteousness. And faith righteousness is the only righteousness that is acceptable unto the Father. Now, in order for us to to fully understand what it is that we're about to read and, and how Paul addresses his audience, we need to talk briefly about the early history of this church. From the very beginning, the gospel came to Jewish people first. That's how it began. If you read about the early church in the book of Acts, you'll notice that in the first seven chapters of Acts, it deals primarily with Jewish believers. Then in Acts chapter 8, the message of salvation reaches the Samaritans. And this didn't cause too much of a problem or didn't bring up too much controversy because at least Samaritans were part Jewish people. But when Peter, when he goes to the Gentiles, by the time you get to Acts chapter 10, then there's a little tension that comes into play. It begins to create a bit of an uproar. So much so that when you get to Acts chapter 11, Peter gets kind of called to the carpet in order to explain his activities and explain why it is that he's taking the message of salvation to Gentile individuals. Now, Peter explains to the, to the people that it was God that directed him to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And so for, for a moment, that, that seemed to appease the people. And things kind of settled down a little bit. But it didn't settle down for long. See, Peter had opened the door of faith to the Gentile people in Acts chapter 10. And then Paul, following the example set by Peter, began to preach to the Gentiles on his first missionary journey that you read about in Acts chapter 14. Now, it didn't take long 
for the strict Jewish believers uh, to begin to notice and, and hear about what Paul was doing and who Paul was talking to. And it didn't take long for those strict Jewish believers to now begin uh, to oppose Paul and his ministry, uh, begin to oppose him because he was taking that message of salvation to Gentiles because their, their problem with the whole thing was that they believed that a Gentile had to first become a Jew before they could ever become a Christ follower. And so they were angry with Paul. And so this anger results in this disagreement that we read about in Acts chapter 15. Ultimately, there's this conference at Jerusalem that kind of evaluated what was happening in Paul's ministry to to find out whether or not Paul was to be accepted and his approach to be accepted or not. At the end of this conference, the takeaway was twofold. First of all, Paul received approval for his ministry. And then the second big takeaway was that it was recognized that Gentiles did not have to become Jews first before they became believers. But although that was like the official ruling and that was the official decision, not everybody agreed with it. Some of those strict Jewish followers were dissatisfied with the result. So there was this group of dissenters that kind of arose from within them. And those that dissented against Paul and his approach began to follow Paul wherever he went. Not only did they follow him, they they began to try to steal or even destroy uh, the the churches in which he uh, helped to establish. The reason why we, we take the time to kind of overview all of that is so that you understand is those dissenters are the ones that Paul is addressing here in chapter 3. Okay, so let's, let's read. Look at uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then verse number 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. So who's Paul talking about? Well, Paul is talking about those dissenters. Those individuals that were following him and saying that no, Gentiles, you got to be a Jew before you can ever follow Christ. And Paul says, look out for them. And then he calls them. He says they're dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of flesh. What is he talking about? Let me help you. When Paul says that they are dogs, you got to understand that typically an Orthodox Jew would refer to Gentile people as dogs, subhuman. Now here, Paul flips it, and Paul calls the Orthodox Jews dogs. Like dogs, these dissenters were, were snapping at his heels. They followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrine. They were troublemakers. They were carriers of dangerous doctrine. Paul says, beware, watch out, look out for the dogs. And then he says, not only they're dogs, but, but they're evildoers. Why did he call them evildoers? They're evildoers because there were people who taught that salvation was faith plus something else. It wasn't just faith in Christ that was enough. 
these dissenters believe, yeah, faith is one element, but adherence to Jewish rules and regulations were another. So their false doctrine was leading people astray. Notice what it says in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 makes it clear that no money can be, a sa- can be saved by just doing good works. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. It's all God's doing. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So to be clear, Good works is the result of salvation. Good works is not the basis for salvation. So Paul is saying, watch out. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evil doers. And then he says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is using a pun on the word circumcision. Man, my voice. I feel like I'm going through puberty as I'm speaking today. Maybe I am. Thank you. Wow. Watch out for the dogs, the evildoers among us. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so then he says, those who mutilate the flesh, using a pun, the pun is not the word circumcision. The word circumcision literally means a mutilation to which all the guys said, yeah, of course. No kidding. That's supposed to be funny. Circumcision, mutilation, figure it out. Okay, these dissenters taught that circumcision was essential for salvation to occur. But Paul says it's not essential. Circumcision in and of itself is just a mutilation. True Christians have experienced what is called a spiritual circumcision. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 11, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Here's the point. Circumcision, baptism, taking communion, giving of, of an offering, tithing, Whatever religious practice you can think of, you got to understand religious practices can't offer salvation. No matter how often you do them or how faithful you are to them, salvation comes only in and through Jesus Christ. It's not about the good works. It's not about the rules or the rituals of, of, of a certain religion. Only faith in Christ can bring the hope of salvation. Now, in contrast to these dissenters, Paul describes the true Christian. Look at verse number 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul knew the futility of trying to attain salvation in and through good works. Paul knew that ultimately, no matter how much good we do, good is never good enough. 
can never do enough. That's why he says, I have no confidence in the flesh. The confidence I have for salvation is through Christ. It's what Christ has done. It's what God promises that he will do. Our confidence is in him, not in us. And so he's going to, in a moment, in this next verse, Paul's going to start talking about his past. He's going to get a little bit personal here. And as he talks about his past, he examines his own life. It's as though he becomes an auditor. And as he audits his own life, as he opens the book to see the wealth that he has based upon his spiritual accomplishments, Paul's going to come to the conclusion that he's not wealthy at all. He's bankrupt. He's got nothing. Notice what he says. Look at verse number 6. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he begins to lay out his case. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Man, he had the zeal. He, He was pursuing righteousness. A Hebrew circumcised. Man, he was doing the best that he could. He, he, if, we don't have, if we're not careful, we can have a tendency to look at Paul and begin to think, man, he, he should be commended. He, he's, he's doing a good job. He, he's trying to be obedient. But, but as although we might think that he's doing good and that at least he's sincere, we got to understand sincerity isn't enough. Because as he looked and took an inventory of his own life and he begins to stack up the things that he's achieved on his own, as he begins to measure his life, he discovers that the measurement is wrong. It's off. It's empty. The reason being is he's using the wrong thing to measure himself by. Like the rich young ruler found in Mark chapter 10, Paul was looking on the outside, not the inside. Paul was comparing himself to a standard that was set by people, not by God. When he looked at himself or when he looked at others, he considered himself righteous. But when he compares himself to Christ, well, that changed everything for him. Because ultimately, he discovered that what he thought he had, he wasn't even close. And in his encounter with Jesus, Paul abandons his, his work-based pursuit of righteousness and exchanges that for faith righteousness. When Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he trusts him, becomes a child of God. And when you trust him and you put your faith in God, then a wonderful transaction takes place. Paul loses some things, but he gains so much more. Look at verse number 7. Verse number 7 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The gain that he had. Paul had a great reputation. He had a great reputation as a scholar, a great reputation as a religious leader. He was proud of his Jewish heritage. He was proud 
of his religious accomplishments. accomplishments. However, when he began to look at those things, those achievements against what Jesus had to offer, he realized that he had nothing compared with what Christ could bring in his life. And and so when we, as we become believers, we, we too must understand that God can take the bad in our lives and make it better. But God can also take the good and make it awesome. And here's what's going to happen. Like I'm reminded of the words of, of Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Think about it. He's no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what Paul experienced. Paul lost his reputation as a scholar he lost his reputation as a religious leader, but he gained far much more than he gave up. I want to show you some of the things that, that Paul gained. Let's continue reading in verse number 8. Verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. All those things that he once bragged about, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, persecutor of the church, as to zeal, he had all the zeal uh, in his pursuit of righteousness. All those things that he could have bragged about, when he looks at it now, he says that ain't nothing. In fact, that's just a pile of dung. That's the translation. It's just, it's just manure in, in compared to what I have in Christ. See, when a person becomes a believer, then what they gain is what Paul gained. Paul gains the very knowledge of Christ. That's what I mean by that. As a religious scholar, Paul knew the historical information about Jesus. It's head knowledge. But when he put his faith and trust in Christ, then he knew Christ in a personal way. He knew Christ in a way that changed who he was and what he did. See, to know Christ means more than just knowing about him. It's getting that head knowledge to transfer into a heart knowledge. That's why it says in Proverbs chapter 4, above all things, guard your heart for it affects everything that you do. To know Christ means that you know him in, in a way that it affects who you are and how you live. It's not just that you can say facts about him or tell stories about him. It's the fact that you know him, and now that you know him, it changes who you are. It changes your desire. It changes your interest. It changes your language. It changes the things you watch. Changes the things you listen to. Changes the way you react and respond to people around you. See, Paul gained the knowledge of Christ. But he gained even more. Look at verse number 9. It goes on and says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul receives the knowledge of Christ. 
And then Paul gains the righteousness of Christ. See, righteousness was the goal of Paul's life whenever he was a Pharisee. But it was the self-righteousness. It was a work-based righteousness. It was a righteousness that could never be fully achieved. Now, when Paul trusts Christ as his Lord and Savior, then he lost that self-righteousness and exchanges it, and now he gains the righteousness of Christ. Now, there is a technical word for this transaction that occurs. Some of you are already here in the first service. I'm not going to ask you if you know it because you should and you'll shout it out. Or if you don't shout it out, then my feelings will be hurt because you didn't pay attention in the first service. Let me give you that technical word. The technical word that Paul is talking about here is a word that's called imputation. Imputation. That word simply means to put to one's account. Here's how it plays out. Paul looks at his own record. He looks at his own life. He looks at his own spiritual achievements. And he discovers ultimately that he is bankrupt. Then he looks at Jesus' record and sees that he is perfectly righteous. And when Paul places his trust in Jesus, then the transaction that takes place is that God takes the righteousness of Christ and credits it to Paul's account. Think about that. The one thing that we all, there's many things, but one thing that we all have in common is that we are born separated from God. And because of our sin, that sin separates us from God. And we'll never be able to do enough good deeds or to give enough money to to get us into a right position with God. God is perfectly holy and righteousness, and only perfection can be in his presence. And because we are all oh so far from perfection, we have no hope of being in the presence of the Father. But God had a plan. God had a plan, and that plan was in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfectly righteous, no sin of his own, fully God, fully fully human, lived a righteous life. So this is what happens. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, it's not just an imputation that takes place, it's actually a double imputation that takes place. There's an exchange that happens. God takes our sin and our unrighteousness and he gives it to the account of Jesus. And then Jesus, in his perfect, sinless condition, God takes his righteousness and he gives it to our account. So he no longer looks at me. I'll speak for me because I don't know your salvation condition or not. But I know I have my faith and trust rooted in the Son of God. And so God looks at me now, and he doesn't see my imperfection or my unrighteousness because he took that and he gave it to Jesus. And in Jesus, he took his righteousness, and he now put that on my account. I got the better end of the deal. What did I give Jesus? Punishment. And Jesus, in his love, says, I'll take on that punishment for you. And I'll give you my righteousness so that you can stand before the Father. Oh, so 
Paul gains the knowledge of Christ. He receives the righteousness of our Lord. And then one more, he gains the fellowship of Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, when when Paul was living under the law, all he had was a set of rules. That was it. But now, with faith in the Son, he has a friend, a master, a constant companion. No wonder Paul has joy, because his life didn't depend upon the cheap things of this world. It was focused on the eternal values that are found in Christ Jesus. You say this, that people who live for the things of this world will always be disappointed. They'll always be unsatisfied. Either they are constantly trying to protect their treasures, either they're, they're constantly trying to accumulate more treasures, or, or they're, they're constantly in fear that somebody's going to come in and to steal the treasure that they have. But not so for the believer who has the spiritual mind. Because our joy isn't found in any of the treasures of this world. It's not about the things of the world. Whether things that you can see or fame or reputation, it's not about that. Our treasure is the eternal worth that we have in Christ Jesus. And that can never be stolen from us. It can never be taken away from us. And therefore, we ought to live our lives in the awareness of what we have. But Paul, as he took an inventory upon his life, he knew that no matter how much good he did, it was never going to be enough. His only hope was to exchange that in faith in Jesus. To know Christ in a personal way. When he cries out for salvation, then that double imputation takes place. God takes his sin and his unworthiness, places it on his son, and takes the righteousness of Jesus and credits it to Paul's account. So that now he has the perfect fellowship with Christ. One that can never be destroyed or taken away. That's Paul. What about you? What about you? Have you done an inventory of your own life? Are you trying to earn salvation by doing good deeds? It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough to to go to Bible studies. It's not enough to put money in the offering plate. I mean, those are good things. But good things can't get you to heaven. Only faith in Jesus Christ can. Have you received the knowledge of Christ? Do you have the righteousness of our Lord? Are you walking in fellowship with the King of Kings? Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for for carrying my voice long enough to, to make it through this morning. More importantly, Father, I thank you for the hope of salvation. God, in this room, there are either those that follow Christ or those that don't. We're either a child of God or we're a child of the devil. Help us to understand who's our daddy this morning. Father, if you're not our, our dad,
And may your spirit bring conviction and salvation into our lives. And if you are a dad, then may that same spirit bring conviction into our lives of the things that we're doing that displease and dishonor you. Help us to see the sin that's in our lives before we go and start pointing out the sin that's in everybody else's life. In this moment, Spirit, deal with us. Give us the courage and the conviction that we need to make the decisions right here and right now that will bring you the honor and glory that you're due. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing through one more song, and then we're going to be done. I'll be here.